Turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. This is a glorious, glorious prayer and song. And as you're turning there, let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would bless us now as we seek your face to listen in your word. We're listening to you. We're looking to you. God, would you help us seek you now? Would you help us hear and pay attention? Would you fill me with your spirit, even in the midst of my brokenness, so that I could do a good job representing you here? Thank you for this incredible scripture. May it teach us and instruct us and form us. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you, who, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in, in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Hebrew there is hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This psalm is very unique and extremely special um, for a few different reasons. For one thing, you'll notice that there's no heading to this psalm. It just simply says, 
of David in the beginning. It doesn't identify uh, as a prayer that comes from a specific situation in David's life. So like so many of David's psalms. Um, Not only that, there's almost no reference to enemies, which is unlike David's psalms. David had some enemies and he prayed about it a lot when they were pursuing him. No reference to specific sins in this psalm. So what we have here and why I like it so much, this is what I call a one-size-fits-all kind of a psalm. It applies, it's easy to apply to all of us, of all places, of all times, of everyone's life. And this psalm, like all psalms, is teaching us what prayer is. Did you know that the psalms, we discussed this on Friday in our class, the psalms is the prayer book of the Bible. And for years and years and years and years, it was the prayer book of the ancient Hebrew community. It was the prayer, we know it was the prayer book of Jesus, he prayed the Psalms. And we know that it was the, uh, up till a few centuries ago, it was the prayer book of the Christian church, writ large, up to just a little bit ago. Now we don't think of it that way anymore, unfortunately. Um, and one of the things that the, that the Psalms will teach you, number one, about prayer is that prayer is answering language only. Did you know that? Prayer is answering language only only. See, the way that the ancient Hebrew community had their scriptures set up in the Old Testament, they divided their scriptures into three main sections. One was the Torah, which is the Hebrew word for law. It refers to the first five books of the Bible, the the books of Moses. And to the ancient Hebrew community, that was, the Torah, was the definitive word of God to mankind. That was it. That was pinnacle. Everything that came after Torah was derivative out of Torah. The second uh, section is the prophets. And the prophets is basically a, um, a reiteration of the Torah in a different historical context. The prophets applied the Mosaic Code to the present and they could predict the, sometimes predict the future with Torah. It was a reapplication of Torah to the current situation. And the third section that the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew community had, the Torah, there was the prophets, and thirdly, there's what they call the writings or the responses. Um, and responses can come in different forms. There's the argumentative kind of responses. You think of Job, why? Or in the Psalms too, there's a section of Psalms called the imprecatory Psalms, which is, why, O Lord? Where are you, O Lord? What's going on, God? I don't understand you, God. But the Psalms are a collection, probably over a few centuries, a collection of prayers, poems, responses, answerings from the ancient Hebrew community to the Torah. The um, Psalms are clearly divided by an, an editor into five different books, five sections to the book of Psalms that would mirror the Torah, a response to that. So number one, prayer teaches, uh, the Psalms teach us that prayer is answering. What does that mean? Anybody, what does that mean then? That means we don't initiate. God is the initiator. We're the responders. Fundamentally, right away, it's forming. Secondly, prayer is formative, as we're going to find out in this psalm. 
the more we pray and what we pray about and what we choose to meditate on actually forms our life. It actually does something. It's not a shot in the dark. It's not like scratching a lottery ticket. It actually forms your character, forms your soul, and forms your mind. Prayer, especially praying through the Psalms, is so important. So, so, so important. The Torah, which to the ancient Hebrew was the definitive, notice the whole grammatical structure of this psalm. He sets the whole psalm up in the first few verses. Let me just get into this specific psalm. Look, he says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And, here we go, forget not his benefits. Um, In Hebrew, there's something called parallelism which is the style of poetry um, that the Psalms are written in. Um, And Hebrew poets, they don't rhyme words or sounds. Have you noticed if you read through the Psalms that a lot of it doesn't rhyme? And maybe you think to yourself, well, maybe in the Hebrew it rhymed. No, it didn't rhyme there either. (laughs) Hebrews, they rhymed ideas or they would restate what they just said in the line before. So in other words, this if you think of it this way, this could be read, how do you praise the Lord with all your soul? By not forgetting his benefits. They're the same. Praising the Lord comes from thinking right, not forgetting certain things, and forgetting others. And then right after that, he just enumerates those benefits. Virtually everything else in the Psalms is just a list of these benefits. But these benefits come from a response to Torah, specifically the Exodus story following the golden calf. You remember the story. The, um, the Israelites were rescued out of Egypt by God. He parted the sea and he leads them into the wilderness. And there's this beautiful time where God cuts covenant with them. He says, hey, you're my treasured people. It's this beautiful language. I love you guys. You're my treasured people. I want, it's almost like a, a lot of commentators will say at the foot of Mount Sinai, it was like a wedding ceremony between Yahweh and his people. Hey, you be my people, I'll be your God. I love you, I'll cherish, you're my treasured possession. And the people in effect say, I do, right? I do. And then a few chapters later, they really did not. Only a few chapters later, they're fashioning a golden calf. Imagine if you would, on your wedding night, And you go away to your honeymoon. It's the first night that you're with your bride or you're with your spouse. And you say, I'm just going to go out and grab a cup of coffee or grab a cup of water. And you run out and you come back to find your new spouse in bed with someone else. That's the level of betrayal that Yahweh feels in those chapters. And you 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 can feel it. You can feel it screaming off the page. He says, you remember what he says to Moses. Go back down there. The people are worshiping a golden calf. I'm going to wreck them and start a, new, start a new nation through you. You know, he's feeling that. I've heard a lot of commentators say, well, it's because, you know, he's testing Moses. That's nowhere in the text. That's just an assumption. God wasn't, he was, he was, I mean, imagine being a spouse. How would you feel? Now, on a cosmic level, Right, But Moses goes to work mediating and interceding 
And it's chapters long of this kind of back and forth. Moses says, don't do it. Think of, all, of how, you've, how you've set yourself up, how you've revealed yourself to all the other nations. People are now going to say, look, you set them free just to destroy them in the wilderness. It moves the needle a little bit, and God says, fine. You guys can go to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. <laughs> to which Moses and the people say, no, 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 no. The promised land won't be the promised land without you. We want you to go with us. And God says, well, I'll send one of my angels to lead you there safely, but then that's it. You're on your own. And they say, no, 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 no. We want you with us. The whole point of, the, of this whole thing is for us to dwell with you again. We're sorry. And then Moses says, this in chapter 33, he says, if I've found favor in your sight, be merciful. And God says, because you have, because you have found favor in my sight, I will be favorable to them. Very, very important theological principle. Extremely important. God is favorable to us because someone else has found favor with God. Super duper important. That traces all the way through to the Sunday school answer. Jesus, yes. If you're saved, it's not because you pulled yourself up by your moral bootstraps and got yourself in. No, God found favor with Jesus and now extends that to you. There's a mediator involved. You're here because of him. And then in chapter 34, this famous passage where God, Moses says, reveal yourself to me. And God passes by Moses and he proclaims this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Remember our psalm? Psalm 103. David says in verse 8, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is a response. This is a response to Torah. It's almost copy-paste. David is saying, okay, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. What do, okay, where do I go for these benefits? Just my own creativity? No. He listens to the Bible. He listens to the Word, and he says, according to the Word, you are gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's the word hesed. God, uh, the word for God's covenant love in the Bible this is David's response to God's word. So not only is, so right away here, we see this principle. Not only is all prayer answering prayer, and that doesn't mean that you don't get to ask for things. It just means it's couched by listening to the word of God. Therefore, um, reading the Bible could probably be better, um, it's probably better said that we listen to the Bible. And then we respond. So when someone comes to us or comes to me and says, I, you know, I pray that I can have a green car. I think to myself, okay, I will, but that's not couched by listening to the word of God. That's a, that's a, that portrays a fundamental misunderstanding of our relationship with God. Did you know that Jesus came and said, uh, basically, he said, uh, you have not, you have thus, ne you have not, not yet been praying the way you should. There's a right way to pray and there's a wrong way to pray. James said we don't get because we ask amiss. I think fundamentally, a lot of it is because we don't understand he's the initiator, we're the responders. And our prayers need to be couched in the context of us listening to God. It brings us humbly to him at first, doesn't it? 
changes a lot. And so this psalm, like all psalms, teaches us that prayer is answering language and that reading the Bible is really better described as listening and remembering. Remembering. The main thing I need to do in life, the main thing that you need to do in life, the main way to honor God, the main way to handle the immense pressure in life is to immerse yourself in the story found in the word of God and then don't forget. Don't forget. Or you could say that the main problem we have in life is that we do forget. Have you noticed that? It's something really strange we forget. We forget what God says in his word. David says, forget not what's going on in his word. Forget not is a double negative. What he's really saying is remember. Remember. Remember, it's an imperative, it's a command. This is very strong language. Remember, he's saying to his soul. I heard um, a lot of you were impacted by last Sunday's sermon. Do you remember it? Do you think you remember it next week? I barely do. (laughs) Sometimes I read my notes from sermons that I've written a long time ago and I go, I forgot about that, it's good. I forget. Do you think you remember this Sunday's sermon? See, what God did when you were a kid or on a retreat or in some past event or when he spoke to your life was powerful and God really did move. The problem is not whether it actually happened or not. The problem is that we tend to forget, don't we? The reason this is tough for us is because the word remember means something very different for us in the Western world than it did to the ancient Hebrews. Our word remember does not do a good job um, carrying the biblical concept to our brains. The Bible is calling for something far deeper than mental recall. Something far more than that. David is dealing with something far more transforming than just like counting your blessings. Much more than that. He's saying, remember. Why do we need to remember? Why? If you're able to trace this idea through the Bible, which I would encourage you to do, it's just fascinating to look at every time the Bible says forget and remember. What's the Bible telling us to forget? And what's the Bible telling us to remember? Let me just give you a few of them. This is Isaiah 51. It says, you are afraid of mortal men who are but grass, but you forget the Lord your maker that stretched out the heavens and laid down the foundations of the earth. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, if you're afraid of anyone, it's because you've forgotten me. That's what he's saying there. Fear of people comes from forgetting someone else, comes from forgetting God. Uh, here's a good one. This is one of my favorites. Second Peter chapter 1. He says, grow in faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, kindness, and love. And if you are not growing in these things, it's because you've forgotten that you were cleansed from your, the sins of your past. Really powerful. If you're not growing in these things, it's because some part of you, to some extent, you've forgotten that you've been saved from your sins. Over and over and over again throughout the Bible, it goes like this. I encourage you to do it. Go look at it. It's a really great Bible study if you've got time. Even if we just look at those two verses and we didn't do anything else this morning, it's saying, look, if you're afraid of anything, 
If you're, and if you're lacking anything, if you're lacking perseverance, kindness, goodness, anything, it's because you're forgetting something. And then God himself is constantly talking about forgetting and remembering. Um, I will remember your sins no more, God says. Really powerful. Now right there, you've got to ask, what does that even mean? What does that mean? When he says, I will remember your sins no more, it can't mean that he literally can't remember the things you've done. That can't be what that means. What's he talking about? Well, in the Bible, please, if you're taking notes, this is very important, write this down. In the Bible, remembering is about the inner thoughts and memories that fuel your identity. That's what the Bible's talking about. It's talking about the inner thoughts and memories that fuel your identity. In the Bible, remembering is to have something so central to your consciousness that it, that it fuels you completely. It explains, every, it explains all your actions. It explains what you're doing. It explains your behaviors. It affects you completely. To remember something means to have it so central to who you are, that it controls how you act and how you treat others. How many times have you said, in earnest, I will never do that again? I will never do that again. Why? Because in that moment, it's so obvious how destructive it is. You see how bad it is. It's so obvious how wrong it is. And then within weeks, within days, maybe within hours, you're at it again. What happened? What's happened is that was, that conviction was there. It was controlling you. It was vivid. It was immediate. It was gripping you in that moment. But now, even though you can mentally recall it, you can remember it mentally, it's no longer controlling who you are anymore in the moment. In that sense, the Bible would say, even though you can mentally recall it, you've forgotten it. It's no longer affecting your consciousness. There's nothing more discouraging or embarrassing. I mean, if you just see, search your mind right now, humiliating than to think back of the list of things that you've promised to yourself and you've promised to other people. I mean, just think of New Year's resolutions or something or think of all the times you've said, okay, to your friend, I won't do that again. You've resolved and you've promised, I'm not gonna do this. Even though you can remember and mentally recall the fact that you felt that way, you can't remember the actual feeling now. What is going on here? And if you can't remember the feeling, it means you're not acting on it, which means it's not central to your consciousness anymore. And over and over again, the Bible says it's that there's something about us that even though we mentally recall something, we almost immediately, be, it begins to fade like vapor, or like sand through our fingers. Even this moment on Sunday, you might have a powerful encounter with the Lord. And have you ever had a powerful encounter with the Lord and you just think, oh, I just don't, like not waking up from a good dream. I don't want to wake up. I don't want to wake up because I know I'm going to go back to work on Monday and I'm going to get swept back into the things and I'm going to forget, I'm going to forget, I'm going to forget. It's, it's, a, it's a thing in the Bible. The Bible confirms, yeah, that happens. That means that there was, they were so important but they still lose their immediacy. Now, some of you might be calling me out on this. Some of you critical thinkers out there, I hope so. Some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, Mike. There are some things that were done to me or some horrible things that I've done to others or some sights that I have seen that I would love to forget. 
I would love to forget some things, but I can't. They continue to grip me. I don't just mentally recall them. They're affecting me now. Others of you have, uh, this is, have deleted traumatic events. You cannot remember them. Your brain has erased them like a hard drive on a computer. But this is actually part of the problem that David here is getting at. He's saying the problem is what the Bible calls sin has dislocated your heart in a sense. There's a, a dislocation going on there. One of the effects of this dislocation is that your memory is all jacked up. In other words, the things that should keep you confident, the things that should keep you affirmed, the things that keep your heart soft and humble and filled with joy, those are the things that almost immediately after you experience them, they begin to leave. You start to forget them. And then the cruel things, the disgusting things, the gross things, oh boy, they stay with us in technicolor. They burn into our brain. I mean, if someone important to you says something mean, something critical, something about your appearance, something about your intelligence, I mean, if one of your parents says you're worthless, I mean, that's like years of therapy trying to get that right. Right? You can't forget that. It's right there. It's immediate. It's gripping you. And even if you can't mentally recall it, it's driving you. And yet, it outweighs hundreds of compliments that people have said about you likely. Maybe even that your parents have said. Why does someone have to tell you a hundred billion times that you're great before you get it? And yet, just once, they say something off color and you're, we're wrecked. Well, because there's something wrong with our hearts. There's something wrong with our minds, and this is it. What you remember, what is central to your consciousness, sets the course of your entire life. This is an area where the Bible and neuroscience are right with each other. Neuroscientists will tell you what you decide to think about will shape who you turn out to be. Scientific fact. If your mind is centered on the mercies you've received, you will be a happy person. If it's centered on the injustices you've received, you'll be a bitter person. I was just reading an excerpt from this book called Our Religious Brains, written by a, a guy that's not a Christian. Our Religious Brains, his subtitle is, What Cognitive Science Reveals About Belief, Morality, Community, and Our Relationship with God. And in it, the author monitored brains. He hooks people up to their brains, up to electrodes, and he tells them, here's what I want you to do. Picture you looking at God, looking back at you with love in his face. And he just has them sit there and just, he says, keep your mind on that. Just picture what it means. And he, he, he can watch the, grain, the brain grow. He can watch it start to add. And after a while, he records in his book, not a Christian, he records in his book, that person inevitably, after a while, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer, that person will start to experience what he calls tranquility. Isn't that fascinating? He says, we don't see anything else like it in any other animal's brain. Isn't that fascinating? Conversely, if you keep reading his book, he then tells people, I now want you to imagine look at your, looking at God, looking back at you with anger and disapproval. And he says, 
he watches the brain start to move in other ways. And after a while, the worst case scenario, he records in his book, they start to experience PTSD-like symptoms. How you look at God matters. What you think about, what you believe about God, what you choose to think about matters. You know, there's a difference between the mind and the brain. The brain is a, the mechanical material part in your head. Um, there's the prefrontal cortex, there's the limbic system, there's the, you know, the reptile brain, there's the fear of flight center, there's all of those, these types of things. Um, but the mind is this immaterial part of you that gets to choose what you think about. You are, you, no matter what the culture tells you out there, you are not passive um, victims of your thoughts. You get to choose what you think about. And that's what the Psalms are all about. Listen to the word of God. Fill your mind with them. It all depends on what you remember. See, remember means what engages you, what is grabbing you, what is empowering you, the memories and experience that you're living from, the formative stuff. And one of the problems we have with our heart is that the good things, the best things, the kind things, the noble things, the things that ought to be controlling us, they fade almost immediately. And the things that make us feel terrible, the things that make us feel spit on, offended, cursed, they're controlling us. Now why is this? I mean, it's hard to argue. The Bible says it, human experience tells us about it, but why is it? Let's go back to the idea of sin. What the Bible over and over again says is that our need to forget, our ability to forget, the way our hearts forget is always going to happen. We will always forget good. This is a biblical thing. This, we will always forget good. We will always forget God. In, let me prove it to you. In Deuteronomy, God predicted that Israel would forget, for, would forget about him when they entered into the promised land. He predicted it ahead of time because he knows something about us. In Joshua, God miraculously dries up the Jordan River and they pass through the Jordan River. Remember what he tells them? Grab a bunch of rocks and pile them up as an altar because if you don't, you're going to forget. Even something as incredible as that, the waters going like that, as amazing as that is, they're going to forget. Have you had a moment like that? Where in the moment you think, man, I'll never forget this. This is, God told me he loved me. And then weeks, months go by and you're like, did he though? But did he? Or was that the pizza I was eating? Or was that the, what was, what was that? So whenever you go, you remember, he says, don't forget. Why do we forget? Why will we forget this moment? Why will you likely forget this sermon? It doesn't mean you won't be able to mentally recall it. That's not what it means. But it won't con it, what it means is it won't control you anymore. Why? And the Bible says that the answer is that it's an unconscious, you may not like this, it's an unconscious and semi-conscious desire on our part. Let me read this to you. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says, When you come into the promised land, beware lest your heart become proud and you forget me. Pride and forgetting. Or what about Romans chapter 1? 
You remember that? This is actually the key place that this theme comes to light. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the human heart wants to be its own master. It wants us to forget. I think of that Lord of the Rings line where Gandalf says, the ring wants to be found. You know, it's this ominous line. There's something in your heart that actually wants to forget goodness. Why? Because your heart wants to be in charge. It wants to be in control. It wants to be God. You want to call your own shots. Do you not? It's natural. But because of that, the human heart can't bear to see the greatness of God. We don't like the idea that we're responding and he's the initiator, especially in America. We like to be in control. It cannot, it can't, our hearts can't bear to see that we owe God something. It just can't bear it. Therefore, we are semi-consciously always needing to forget. Did you know that? We actually need to forget so that we can stay in control. And so what that does, according to Romans 1, it says that you hold down the truth in unrighteousness. You suppress the truth. You hold down the truth and unrighteousness. So on the one hand, you can't bear the thought of the glory of God. Here's the, here's the tension that's going on in all of us. On the one hand, you can't bear the thought of the glory of God or the greatness of God or that you owe him something. So therefore, you are unconsciously or semi-consciously, some way, you are trying to forget. But at the same exact moment, at the same time, you long for him so much because you're made in the image of God. You long for him, but you don't want him. And there is the tension going on in your and I's soul. We're stuck. We're haunted. That's how the Bible depicts the problem with the human race. We desperately want to forget God, and yet we desperately want God, and therefore we're haunted inside. We have hearts that don't want to forget, but need to forget we can't stand our own, our need for him or how much we owe him. And this is the reason why we are desperately, we desperately need kind of a spiritual intervention. This is why we cannot fix ourselves because all the best things, the truth, the good, and God himself will not stick. Why do we think so many young people, college-age students, are fleeing the faith in America? There's probably a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is because we've become, we've, we've become, the Western church has become the um, champions of the fizzow, you know? We want, like, we want to be impressive and put on a good show, and we want to make this experience, and we send our kids on these retreats, which are good. God uses those, but the problem is when it's a steady diet of that, the Bible says that's great, but it won't stick. It's good for a moment. It's good for a week or two. It's good for a year, maybe. What do we do? What do we do? So, what are we doing about it? Well, take a look. The first thing that you need to do is ask, where do we need to remember? In other words, where does the psalm say is the real problem? And the answer is right in verse 1. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Who is Psalm 103 addressed to? 
It's a magnificent psalm. It's incredible. It's lofty. It's eloquent. It's, who's it, is he talking to God? No. Yeah, he says, he's not talking to, he says, my soul. He's talking to himself. What we're being told here is that in my inmost being, there is unbelief. In my center of centers of centers, in spite of what I might know on the surface or might know in my brain or might know what I've been taught, in spite of those things, down in my core, I can't take the truth in. It's like someone who's sick who can't take the medicine. It just keeps spitting out. They know they might know it, but their body's rejecting it. It's not enough to simply subscribe. It's not enough to simply say, okay, fine, I'll believe that. It's not an intellectual exercise. You won't find in the Bible this sense of, hey, if you pray this prayer and check off these intellectual beliefs, that you'll go to heaven. Sure, that's there, but it's faith is the word pistis in the Greek. It means more than an intellectual thing. It means a full-bodied response It means a loyalty. It means following a king. It's not a math test. It's about knowing a person. How do we get the knowledge of the gospel into our souls until it actually changes us? I think that's, you know, or so many people have asked the question, how do I get it from the 18 inches from my head to my heart? That's really what's at the heart of this. And you have to do what Psalm 103 is, which is a vigorous, disciplined meditation and contemplation. Now listen, this is not easy. I just want to say up front, this is not easy. This takes years of discipline and practice, this meditation. This is not a prayer about your feelings. This is not just reasoning about your feelings. This is praying the truth into your own heart until it catches fire in the presence of God. That's what this is. It's praying the truth into your own heart until you basically, you're praying yourself hot. Praying the truth of God's word. You say, well, I study the Bible. That's not what this is. And you say, well, I pray. It's not really that either. It's it's neither of those things. This is something else. This is kind of a hybrid of those things. Yes, and to practice, yes. And it's something that we grow in. It's something that we neither have, it's it's not like an on or off switch, you either have it or you don't. It's something that you are growing in like a plant, like a tree, or you are not growing in. Just pray, pray the goodness of God into your heart? That's awesome. You know, you look better. Yeah, you looked a little lighter this morning. Now, if you haven't noticed, um, I tend to, because it's part of my training and what I believe in, I tend to talk about Jesus on the cross in every stinking sermon. I can't tell you how many times people will come up to me after listening to me for years, and then they will say something like, man, I have never heard that bit on the cross before and I smile and nod but in my heart I'm going yes you have I've said that to you every time for years but for some reason this time it sticks why 
because they're meditating on it themselves. They're contemplating it. There's this beautiful verse, uh, this beautiful line that Paul has in 2 Corinthians where he says, and we, we all, he says, with unveiled face, that means without anything separating us and God, we contemplate the glory of God and in so doing, we are being transformed from glory to glory into that same image. It's a growth as we contemplate. The, the apostle says, take the veil off. It's a, another response to Moses. Take the veil off and look and contemplate. Not just on Sundays, people. As a way of thinking, as a way of living, breathing in and out his grace. Choosing. Now, there are two ways historically that the church fathers and mothers have, have devised to do this that are super helpful. Um, they've called it curating your consciousness, like gardening. Um, and the idea is, is that there's two ways to, there's two things that gardeners have to do. They have to keep certain things out, like bugs, diseases, weeds, rocks, those types of things. And they have to put certain things in, right plants, um, environment, right soil, all of those types of things. The early church fathers and mothers have said the same thing. When the thoughts that come at you, you be, you're like a sentry at the door. And every thought that comes your way, this is why I say this is hard. This is very difficult. Every thought that comes your way, you say, are you for us or are you against us? Whose team are you on? And they have said, well, and the way you'll know is that some thoughts will give you anxiety make you angry, resentful, and you can pretty much know that's not of the Spirit. But those that give tranquility and peace, those are the ones that you can let in. And if you can stop a thought there before it gets in, you're ahead of the game. Other times, you need to get things out. Passing through the garden, you say, how did you get there? And you have to pull that thought out and say, you're out. Yeah, Michael. Yes. Yep, absolutely. That's in, Paul says that too. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It's, a men, it's, a, it's how Christians think. So prayer is answering language. Prayer is formative. It shapes you. And prayer is about thinking, not feeling. Feeling follows truth, not truth following feeling. So prayer is about thinking and how you think. That's why Paul also says, pray without ceasing. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of being. And it's something that we work at. Meditation and contemplation is praying your heart hot with truth, with response from God's word. Now, this is very, really different than any, anything us modern folks are used to. We modern people don't know much about this because we're too busy. <laughs> we're too rationalistic. We're too emotionalistic. This is none of those things. This is none of those things. For example, on the one hand, according to the Bible, meditation and contemplation is not anti-rational. Did you notice this? Other Eastern religions, this, the, by the way, the Bible is an Eastern book. Jesus was an Eastern person. Other Eastern religions um, basically make meditation an end of analysis. They will say, empty your brain. Okay? Okay. Um, but look carefully, and you'll see in this psalm, this is rigorous analysis. 
This is unbelievably rational. What is he doing? He's breaking down the benefits of who God has revealed himself to be in Exodus, and he's just enumerating them. He's thinking about it. He's, he's in Exodus 34, and he's like, okay, you're kind, you're good, you're compassionate, you're slow to you're just. And he's just thinking. Whoop. He's just thinking and thinking. Mulling it over, kind of turning it over on the palate of his brain. But on the other hand, it's, it's not only rational because you could, you could read this thing a hundred times and it's not meditation. It's kind of prayer because it's infused with the presence of God. So it's not just thinking. Prayer is thinking in the presence of God. But what exactly do we have to remember? So I've been a little vague here on purpose. I've been talking about what? The truth. Well, what is the truth? That's not exactly what it says. It's more specific here. What is he saying that we need to remember? Notice it doesn't say, for, um, forget not his attributes, even though I'm sure anything that is true about God would be helpful, but he gets more specific. He doesn't say, forget his attributes. He says, forget not his benefits. In other words, the main thing that you and I need is though we believe the gospel, we forget the gospel. We forget the good news. It's good. That's the main thing that we need to always be pushing central. That's the problem behind all of our problems, is that we forget the gospel. What is the gospel? Listen, it's laid out in the psalm. Look at this. Look at verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Listen to this. Or repay us according to our iniquities. Look at this metaphor. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Now, you might say that's great news. God loves me, but that's not enough. That's not, that's not going to heat your heart. Just walking around or holding a mirror up and saying God loves you is probably not going to do it. Have you noticed that? Because it's still abstract. It's still kind of removed from the story of the Torah. What is it then? The true story of what his love costs. The gospel is the true story of how the good news came. When I first studied this, I thought that David might have misquoted this. Because it's a copy paste at first to Exodus 34, but then David kind of goes off and does, and he kind of does a misquote. Look at David quotes. He says, "The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love." It's exactly the same line of, of Exodus 34. This is exactly the way God begins when He speaks to Moses in Exodus on Mount Sinai. And now, having dug into this a bit, I'm almost positive that He hasn't. He starts by quoting Exodus 34. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. But on Mount Sinai, what does he say next? He says, I will, be, I will by no means clear the guilty, God says to Moses. Everybody will get what they deserve. I will by no means clear the guilty. Everyone gets what they deserved. No one's getting out. And then, but David doesn't write that part. David says... He will not treat us as our sins deserve. Misquote? I mean, I think you guys know probably not. 
nor will he repay us according to our iniquities. David feels the liberty to change it. What has David done? If you're reading this through this thing, you know that in the Hebrew Bible, you know the Hebrew Bible, and suddenly you stop and you say, "Hey, wait a minute! That's not right. That's a misquote, David. You missed it." Moses said, "I'm not going to clear the guilty. Never, ever, 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 ever." God says, "By no means will I clear the guilty." And on the other hand, David says, "The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and I will. He doesn't give us what we deserve." So do we? So do we believe David, or do we believe Moses? That's what I was wondering when I was going through this. Who, do I, who am I supposed to believe here? That's a problem in the plot. Or we can believe both David and Moses if we can believe in what Isaiah said. Isaiah does it again. Isaiah says, And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And God put on him the iniquity of us all. In Jesus, both Moses and David are fulfilled. Because in Jesus, God punished him for all sin. The, innocent, the guilty do not get off innocent. All sin was punished in Jesus. So that now he can turn to you and he can turn to me and he can say, and I will remember your sins no more. It's on behalf of someone else. So here's the story of the gospel. We want to forget God. We're trying to forget God. And what's the most fair penalty for someone like that, do you think? What's fair? What would be the natural consequence and absolutely fair if I try to forget someone who is good and who is love and who is, who is love himself, the greatest being in the universe, what would be the penalty of me trying to forget him well, of course, him forgetting me, of course, would be a great penalty. I'm just going to forget you. But what happens if you could actually be forgotten by the one who is the source of all significance? What happens there? See, to, some, to, to forget somebody is to treat them as insignificant or without weight. It's to look right through them. It's to say they don't matter. They don't have import. What if someone who is the source of all significance treats you as insignificant? Oh, let me just back it up. You married folk out here. What happens when your spouse ignores you for a day? Mm. It's not fun. In fact, some people just would rather be yelled at. Because at least there's some acknowledgement. But man, that silent treatment, that gets to the core, doesn't it? Now think about the most significant, that your spouse is an important person in your life. That's why it hurts. Now think about the most significant person in the universe looking through you saying, depart from me for I never knew you. That's what the Bible, I think, how the Bible describes hell. The one that you long for. The one that you want the one that your being cries out for looks back at you and says, I don't know you anymore. What happened to Jesus on the cross? What did he say? Yep. Absolutely. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It could be translated forgotten me. 
Absolutely. Because on that cross, you know what was happening? God ignored his son. Man, I'll tell you what. This gets me in the feels. You know, before I was a dad, I thought about Jesus' part on the cross. But after being a dad, it's the joy of my heart that when my son cries out for help, that dad is there. Can you imagine God, his son, crying out, and he did not answer him back? He ignored him. In other words, Jesus no longer controlled God's consciousness at that moment, and he turned his face to remember you and me instead. Now, to the degree that you fill your mind with that story. You see how different that is than saying, God loves me, looking in the mirror. God loves you. It's different, isn't it? When you turn that story over in your mind and you keep doing it and you keep doing it and you suck on that thought like a jolly rancher, you just enjoy it. It will change you. It will change you. Gradually, you will grow. You will grow and you will grow. Forget not, church, that he was forgotten so that you would be eternally remembered. Forget not his benefits to you and grow. This is why community is so important. Talk about these things to one another, Deuteronomy says. When your kids wake up, tell them about it. When they go to sleep, tell them about it. When you're walking in the way, talk about it. Talk, contemplate it. Like I said in the worship time, like a meal that you're sharing. This is how that spoke to me. How did it speak to you? And we grow together. We pray ourselves in a community hot by thinking, meditating, contemplating the glory of God so that we all with unveiled face contemplate his glory and we're changed. Let me read to you as a last verse something glorious. That's not going to work. This is First Peter. I want you to I, this. I, I want you to think about this. What's in store for you? Second Peter. He's about to die, and this is what he writes. He says, "Listen, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through." Knowledge, first of all, knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. Are you ready for this? By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Why? Listen, so that through them you and I may become partakers of the divine nature. We are now in the nosebleed section of the Bible. Notice the high view that the Bible has for mankind. He wants you and I to partake of the divine nature. Either some of you should walk out for thinking that's heresy or that's something that we're to attain to. What makes us different than our Mormon friends is that they read this as a power thing. We'll be as powerful as God will become God. 
This is an intimacy and a love thing that we would be involved in the divine nature of love and intimacy. This is where you're growing to, people. To the degree that you think. He says it's accessed through knowledge. Meditation. Filling your mind. Meditation. 